Good Monday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR's presentation entitled Your Life is Worth Living. Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 40 years, Bishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of inspiration and encouragement. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me on this Monday evening to listen to the wisdom and wit that is Bishop Sheen. Today I've selected a program by Bishop Sheen entitled Women Who Do Not Fail. And I think it is very appropriate in this world today. We uh, women have had much thrown onto them, much responsibility. You know, I think at Christmas time, the great effort that is put forth by women who prepare the homes for Christmas, the meals, the the running around, they not only have to be, you know, wives and mothers, they have to be, like I say, almost misses everything, but yet. The grace of the Lord is sufficient, and the Lord continues to inspire these women to do a sacrificial act of love for friends and family. And again, I I thank God for uh, His grace and His mercy. But women who do not fail, something to ponder on. And uh, I know I'm looking forward to this talk today by Bishop Sheen. During the second half of our program, we will continue our catechism series. Uh, it is a quite a long program. It's 50 uh, lessons, and so uh, we're just starting to begin. We're on Lesson 11, which will be on the Blessed Trinity, and how appropriate it is that we, of course, celebrate the birth of our Lord, uh, the second person of the Holy Trinity, but to now complement it with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let us learn our faith through this great teacher of the faith, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Since our subject this evening is women who do not fail, perhaps we are entitled to tell the oldest story in the world about women and against them. The story is about Adam after the fall of man, he was out walking one day with his two boys, Cain and Abel, and they passed the wreck and the ruin of the once beautiful Garden of Paradise. Adam looked in rather wistfully, pulled the two boys to himself, and then said, Boys, that's where your mother ate us out of house and home. <laughs> then as the centuries went on, man found it rather difficult to be without woman, G.K. Chesterton, could hardly keep an engagement without his wife. One time he sent a telegram to her that read, I'm in Manchester, dear. Where ought I be? <laughs> the level of any civilization is always the level of its womanhood. And the reason is, when we know something, we always bring it down to our own level. That is why we have to explain things to children by bringing it down uh, to the level of their minds. But when we love something, we always have to go out to meet it. For example, if we love music, we have to meet the demands of music. 
We study a foreign language, we have to follow its laws. Even if we study ping pong, we have to meet its requirements, too. Now, inasmuch as woman is loved, it follows that the nobler a woman is, the nobler man will have to be to be deserving of that love. That is why the level of any civilization is always the level of its womanhood. And women who do not fail can be broken down into three different categories. Those that cover, first of all, the women who do not fail in the social, political, and economic order. Secondly, women who do not fail in the home. And thirdly, women who do not fail in their preservation of spiritual values for civilization. First of all, women who do not fail in the social, political, and economic order. That immediately brings up this question. Does professional life harden a woman? It is sometimes asserted that it does. This is not true. There's nothing in professional life to harden any woman. Does it happen, however, that women in professional life sometimes do become hard? Yes, but that is due to other factors. A woman becomes hard only when she loses an opportunity to manifest those specifically feminine qualities of sympathy and kindness and tenderness. Every woman in the world was made to be a mother, either physically or spiritually. And here we're not talking of physical motherhood. We're speaking of spiritual motherhood. A woman in professional life is happy when she has an occasion to be feminine. The man is the guardian of nature, but a woman is the custodian of life. Therefore, in whatever she does, she has to have some occasion to be kind and merciful to others. She cannot look at a limping dog. She cannot look at a, at a flower that is has a broken stem without her heart and her mind and her hands going out to these things as if to bear witness that she was appointed by God as the very guardian, the custodian of life. The woman who does not fail in professional life is the woman, therefore, who manifests this feminine quality of what we will call equity. There's a world of difference between law and equity. Law is concerned with rules, with exactness, with justice. Equity, there are not many more courts of equity. The world used to be full of courts of equity. Equity is concerned with the circumstances that escape law, with extenuating circumstances, excuses for action. Equity always finds some reason for not being too strict and too rigorous. 
And it used to be, as Henry Adams pointed out in that great work of his on Mont Saint-Michel, there used to be a reverence for all of the ladies of equity. He tells the story of the Cathedral of Chartres. And he pictures on one side of this great cathedral magnificent windows that were put up by one of the great families of France, the family of Blanche of Castile. And then on the other side of this cathedral were another set of windows that were put up by the family of Pierre Dreux. They almost seemed to be carrying on the civil war across the vault of that cathedral. And Henry Adams said, there on the main altar, there stood the statue of Our Lady of Equity, listening, as it were, to the disputes, but with mercy and kindness and tenderness, symbolized by the holding of a babe in her arms. She was reconciling the conflicting parties. And if a woman does not have an opportunity in her working hours between nine and five to manifest those feminine qualities of tenderness and meekness and gentleness, then she will have to find occasion afterwards. That is to say, from five o'clock on. Then she keeps normal. Then she keeps feminine. Then she keeps happy. I was thinking the other day why we have such a very happy office. I think the reason is that everybody who is there has an opportunity, though they're doing somewhat the same work that is done in every other great office in America, typing, mailing letters, receiving letters, and the like. They're happy because they... They know that everything they do is associated with helping, as we did last year, 63 million sick and orphans and aged and lepers throughout the world. It's a wonderful sensation to enter into any kind of work and to realize that you know that mankind is better simply because you made some contribution, even in a commercial way. Women of this kind are always happy. Here are the women who do not fail. And then there's the second type of woman who does not fail, and that is the mother. Here we speak of physical mother. The mother and the wife. Every mother is the bearer of God's gifts to man. She adds a new dimension to the love of husband and wife. She does most in the production of what is actually the mutual incarnation of the love of husband and wife, namely a child. And then there comes mothercraft, or the teaching of obedience to children. We hardly ever hear of obedience anymore in our modern world. And yet, obedience is the condition of wisdom. And mothers who do not fail to be mothers always teach their children wisdom through obedience. Now, how was that done? Well, take a scientist. A scientist, if he's ever to know nature, has to sit passively before it. He does not give nature its laws. He says to nature, here I am sitting before you. You teach me. I will learn from you. To just the extent that he is obedient, 
he is wise about the laws of nature. And then when he has the laws of nature in his own mind, then he can convert them into technical power, into the progress of civilization. And so it is with a child. When a child is obedient, he learns wisdom. Not only the wisdom that comes from the experience of parents, but the wisdom that comes from the moral and religious training they give their children, but also the wisdom that comes from tradition, for the family is that which perpetuates the tradition. When the child has finally acquired that wisdom by obedience, then later on, he can use that wisdom for his own perfection and out of his own freedom, but he has to obey first. And the real mother who does not fail is in relationship to her child like a wheat field is in relationship to a grain of wheat. That grain of wheat is normal. It's sane. Why? Because it's rooted, fixed in tradition. It's in communion with the earth and communion with the sun and the stars and the rain. And if you take that grain of wheat out of that field before it is ripe, it requires an independence which is its death. And so it is with a child. When a child is uprooted from the wisdom and the tradition and the love and the obedience of a home. The child is like that grain of wheat that has been pulled up, unripe. And he begins to acquire an importance which actually does not have. Because he's not yet ripe. He's not yet wise with obedience. Because there are so many children in our modern world that have been uprooted without mothers of that particular kind, they insist on speaking to their elders before they have learned. They are asked to speak on international and social problems before they've learned that great wisdom that comes from obedience and a knowledge of tradition, they command before they have learned to obey. The mother who does not fail. Setting certain limitations for her children, the limitations of love, finds the children happy just as a child is happy playing in a rock at sea when there's a wall around the sea. He has some roots. Mothers of this kind who teach the children this kind of obedience are the mothers who will raise the great citizens for a great America of tomorrow. And then there is the third. And they are the women who preserve the great spiritual values for civilization. 
It is rather difficult to tell precisely everyone in a complete way just what they do for the world. But there must be someone in the world who will preserve ideals. So that there will be always be ideals to which every man can look when he loves a woman. And they are those women who dedicate and consecrate themselves in virginal lives to the love of God. They are like soldiers. Who does most to preserve patriotism in a nation? It is not the politician who talks about the country. It is not the dramatist who writes about it. Those who do most to preserve the ideals of patriotism in a nation are the soldiers on battlefields who are prepared to die if need be in order to manifest to other citizens that other values are unnecessary, that other values are unimportant compared to the great love of country. Now, should there not be women who will do for love what soldiers do for patriotism? Should there not be some women who will love divine love so deeply and so profoundly that they will sacrifice all lesser loves in order to preserve for a weak and sinful and possibly sex-minded world the real understanding of love? Keep it pure. We can readily understand why any young woman, for example, should love a human heart that decays. But it seems very hard for some to understand why anyone should love the divine heart. Everybody can understand why anyone should love the spark. There are very few who understand why anyone should love the flame. Perhaps we could make it clear in, in an example. Here's a rose. This rose has its own father, its own mother. Its own hopes and aspirations for the future. When there was rain, it had its own tears. When there was sunshine, it had its own smile. And out into the garden there came a hand and plucked up that rose and destroyed it as far as its rose environment was concerned. But there was no injustice done because the hand of man is above the rose and he may use it for his own purposes. So in a human family is a human rose. With his own real father and mother, brothers and sisters, hopes and aspirations for the future, own real laughter and own real tears. And from out 
High heaven, there comes the hand of the heavenly gardener that reaches down to that young woman and plucks her up. Destroys her life as far as human environment is concerned. There's no injustice done. The hand of man is above the rose and the hand of God is above the soul. And he may solicit the human heart to a perfect love. But you ask, well, what favor and blessing ever accrues to the rose that is plucked? Well, this rose that is plucked is touched by human hands. It may even be pressed to human lips. It may even be privileged, too, to lay its crimson head alongside of the lady of love. Rose life is shortened, yes, but what a beautiful life that now begins to lead with man so you all can see it. And so this young human life that is plucked is, is put into the vase of consecration, service and love of God and refreshing waters of sanctifying grace are poured on it from day to day. It's, human life is shortened, yes, but what a beautiful life begins to lead with God. So that all the world may know that here are lovers. Lovers with what Thompson has called a passionless passion, a wild tranquility. To be in love with God. These are the women who do not fail. And it is interesting, if you ever noticed it, that in the great crisis, the greatest crisis that ever faced the life of our blessed Lord, there were many instances of men failing, but there was not a single instance of a woman failing. Peter denied. Judas blistered his lips with a kiss. But as regards women, some women solaced him on the way to Calvary. A woman made her way into Pilate's courtroom to plead his case. A woman wiped his face on the road to Calvary and became known as Veronica, Veronikon, the true image. And then at the foot of the cross, there were three women. Their names were the same. Their names... Mary. Mary Magdalene, Mary of Cleophas, and Mary of Nazareth, the mother of the Savior. They are the three women we described. They symbolize the three. Mary Magdalene is the woman symbolizes those that takes hold of the tangled skeins of a seemingly wrecked and ruined life and weaves out of it the beautiful tapestry of saintliness and holiness and therefore the type of woman who goes into the political, economic and social order and regenerates the downtrodden and heals the wounds of those who are sick of heart. And then there was Mary of Cleophas, the mother of James. The mother who taught obedience to a son and obedience that was sought but he became obedient even to the wisdom that was the word. And then finally there was Mary the contemplative who left the lights and glamours of the world for the shades and shadows of the cross where saints are made. These are the women who do not fail. 
and we salute them, we toast them, not as the modern woman, once our superior, now our equal, but we toast them as the great women who never fail, the women who were closest to the cross on Good Friday and first at the tomb on Easter morn. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. Good Monday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this Monday evening to listen to one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I think you'll agree with me that that reflection on the three Marys at the foot of the cross was a powerful ending to that talk. And I think it gives us the example to be like the three Marys, to be faithful to the end. I like how Bishop Sheen talks that they were there at the foot of the cross at the very end, but they were the first ones to the tomb when he was risen. And I think of our Blessed Mother and how she truly restores mankind in a beautiful way with her example of not failing. You know, we look at the beginning of the world, Adam and Eve and the tree, and with Our Lady and Our Lord, Jesus is the new Adam, Mary is the new Eve, and the tree is the wood of the cross. But what is beautiful, where Eve failed her husband, Mary does not fail. She is there to the very end. And so let us now, as we move away from the crib, the manger scene, our eyes focus on Christ's final destination, his glory in heaven. But to get to heaven, he had to go through the cross. And so now we spend some time now starting to reflect on the mystery of his suffering. It's funny how when we read the creed, we talk about how Jesus was born, and then we skip right to he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. 
And so sometimes we don't get to uh, just bask in the glow. It seems that Christ goes quickly from the manger to the cross. But let us again draw the example from our Blessed Mother, Mary Magdalene, and Mary Clephas. And not only those three Marys, but the great saints that have gone before us. I think of St. Therese, the little flower, and her love of Jesus. And not only her, but the thousands of others that have gone before us, marked with the sign of faith. And so if you've missed a part of this program, or would like to watch Bishop Sheen on television and live giving this presentation, visit our website, bishopsheentoday.com. And on this website, you will find 200 Bishop Sheen videos, 300 of his talks, and a listing of all his books and pamphlets he wrote. And uh, again, just a great communicator. Again, bishopsheentoday.com on the internet. I encourage you to spend a bit of time. There's a few drop-down tabs where you'll see different categories of talks. There's uh, four video libraries full of great things. I, I remember sharing last week Bishop Sheen's videos on Christmas. He did two beautiful videos, The Meaning of Christmas and Superman and Christmas. And so classic uh, shows to watch. So again, I encourage you to visit www.bishopsheentoday.com. And another website I would encourage you to visit is our own website here at CKWR. On there you will find our program guide along with a number of valuable links to uh, guide you through some community events and the different personalities here at CKWR. So www.ckwr.com and there is an online feature for donations if you feel so called. And so again, we ask you to bookmark that on your computer. And so now let us return back to Bishop Sheen as he teaches us the faith. Uh, he will be teaching us Lesson 11 in the Catechism series, which is entitled The Holy Trinity. And so without further ado, may I present to you the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Peace be to you. We have now come to a point where we propose to discuss the Trinity. But as I was preparing something to say about the Trinity, there came to my mind two possible objections that you might have had concerning original sin. May we treat those briefly. Uh, one objection might be this. Why is it that uh, I have to suffer on account of Adam? I had nothing to do with him. I was not involved with his sin. The answer is, yes, you were involved, so was I. We were all involved, simply because Adam was the head of the human race. A river polluted at its source affects the entire current. Parents are infected. The infection passes on to their children. When the president declares war, we are at war, and without any individual declaration on our part, for the simple reason that the president is the head of our country. So, too, Adam was the head of the human race. 
What he did, we did. Just as one man's evil can affect a whole nation, as the good and honor of a father can affect the family, so too the disobedience of one man, Adam, affected us all. But God in his mercy has repaired that harm through the obedience of the new Adam, which is our blessed Lord. The second objection that might be urged against original sin is, why should I lose the blessings that Adam had on account of his sins? Is there not an injustice on the part of God to deprive me of the many favors that he had simply because he sinned? In answer to that objection, it must be recalled that there is no injustice done because injustice is the depriving one of something that it is, is his due. When Adam sinned, he lost only gifts. Gifts that God gave him. Not things to which he was entitled because of his nature. On Christmas Day, when you go around giving gifts to all of your friends... Suppose you give every one of them for Christmas a velvet potholder. I come to you the day after Christmas and I say, why didn't you give me a gift? You might very well answer. Well, I did not even need to give gifts to my friends and to my relatives. If I did not give them anything, I would not be depriving them of that which was their due. And when I do not give you anything... I am not depriving you of that which is due you in justice. And furthermore, though we lost those gifts, we get them all back. We get back communion with God now through grace. But the other gifts which Adam lost, we do not get back until the general resurrection. And we get back more than we lost. As the priest says when he puts water into the wine at the offertory of the Mass, Mirabiliter condidisti et mirabilius reformasti. What thou didst so wonderfully make, thou didst more wonderfully reform. Leaving now those objections behind, we come to the Trinity. You know how to bless yourself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. When you say in the name of the Father, you put your hand to your forehead. When you say in the name of the Son, you put your hand below to the breast. And when you say the Holy Spirit, you place your hand first on your left shoulder, then on your right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Notice that when you do that, you also make the sign of cross, which is redemption. You were baptized in the name of the Trinity, and our blessed Lord often spoke of it. For example, when he said, going teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our blessed Lord did not say, in the names of. In the name of. 
because there's only one nature, the nature of God. The Trinity means there are three persons in God and only one nature. Without going into very profound explanations of nature and person, a nature answers the question, what? And a person answers the question, who? I repeat, there are three persons in God and only one nature. And a person in the Trinity does not mean the same as a person in this world. A person in the Trinity is not someone with hands and feet and a beard. A person in the Trinity means a relation or a relationship. For example, there's a road that runs between Chicago and New York. There's a road that runs between New York and Chicago. It's the same road. But it is a different road under a different relationship. You see how out of one thing you get the multiple? Remember your chemistry? What was the chemical symbol for water? H2O. That is its nature. It has only one nature. But is it possible to have various relationships within that one nature? Most certainly. H2O can be a liquid. It can be ice. It can be steam. Is the liquid a different nature from H2O? No. The ice? No. The steam? No. Somehow or other, the three are in one. Just as in the sun, there is substance, light and heat, and yet only one sun. Now we're going to apply this in some way to the Trinity, which is a great and tremendous mystery. And when I get through... I will not have explained it to you. I remember once having spent an hour describing with analogies the Trinity to someone who was taking instructions, and I insisted very much upon the fact that it was a mystery. When I finished, the good lady said, at the beginning you said that this was a mystery. It's no longer a mystery to me. You made it perfectly clear. Well, I said, Madam, if I made it perfectly clear to you, I did not explain it right. It should be a mystery. And it will be when I finish. There are various ways of approaching the subject, and I'm going to start very low. I'm going to start with life, to show you that life is complex. And then we're gradually going to take life right up to the Trinity by analogy. It will seem as if I'm a million miles away from it, but bear with me. I hope the explanation will not be like that of a, a lawyer who, arguing before a judge, went into a long history of cases, legal decisions, precedents, and in the most confusing way, 
He had a dim suspicion that he was not perfectly clear, and he said to the uh, judge, uh, Your Honor, do you follow me? The judge said, uh, Yes, he said, I do, but if I knew the way back, I would leave you now. So I beg you, bear with me. Life. What is it? That mysterious thing that is bound up with all of our pleasures and destiny. That thing which thrills me and saddens me. Sometimes seems the greatest of all gifts and at other times the most burdensome. That thing which I know best and which I know least. What is it? The first obvious answer is given to us by the commonplace things round about us. We always associate life with some kind of movement or activity. If we see an animal lying motionless in the field, it gives rise to the suspicion that possibly the animal is dead because there seems to be no movement. And then when a child is full of exuberance and joy, we say it's full of life. Notice that we associate life with movement and our explanation and description is really not too bad. When you come to a more scientific definition, you find out that the movement or the activity has to be what is called imminent, has to be inside of the thing. There's another kind of movement which is called transitive. For example, the light that seems to come from phosphorus, heat that comes from a radiator. It has no power of generating heat within itself. It just passes from the outside. Stove, for example, has purely transitive activity. So does radium. Stone rolling down a hill has transitive activity. But life on the other side has this different kind of activity, which is called imminent. It is from the inside. Now let us try and find a law concerning this life. And the law is, note it carefully, the greater the imminent activity, the higher the life. In other words, the more the activity is inside of the living thing, the higher it is. All creation, as you know, is a pyramid. At the base of the pyramid is the material chemical order. Then there are plants and animals and man, angels and God. We are now going to apply this law. It is so universal that it can be verified in every one of the orders. A stone, as we know, has no imminent activity, though Michelangelo, when he finished the statue of Moses, struck it with his chisel. It see, he said, speak. It seems so lifelike that really it ought to be full 
of speech, but it had no interactivity. But there's interactivity in a plan. It always has its mouth to the breast of Mother Nature, and it takes up into itself all the vital elements that are needed for it. When you come to an animal, it has higher life than the plant. The plant has the power of vegetation, has the power of generation, begetting seeds. But the animal has two powers, imminent powers, that the plant does not. One is the ability to move, and the other is the ability to see, to taste, to touch, and to smell, what is called sense activity. A plant cannot decide during the winter to move from New York down to Florida or California. We have to be very fair in our examples. But an animal can move from light to shade. Then, too, thanks to its sense knowledge, it gets the outside world inside of itself. It possesses an inner world. Dog can know its master's voice. When you come now to man, is there a higher activity? Oh, yes. Thinking and willing. Man has all of the imminent activity of plants and animals, but he has also something else that plants and animals have not. Knowledge and love. First of all, he thinks... He thinks thoughts like faith, justice, hope, relationship, fortitude. Where do these thoughts come from? They're not in the outside world. You never saw faith out for a walk. You never saw fortitude eating a dessert. You never saw relationship climbing a hill. Where did you get these ideas? Your mind generated them. Your mind is fecund. Do not think the only kind of generation in the world is the generation that the animal has and that a human being has to beget its kind. There's the chaste generation of the mind. The ability to beget ideas or words. How come... To another point about the mind. When the mind begets an idea, generates something, what it generates does not fall from itself. Like an apple falls from a tree, like an animal falls from its kind when it is born, the fruit of our mind stays inside of the mind. All we got to do is just simply look into the mind, and there it is. It is distinct from the mind, but it is never separate. That is why when I want to find a thought, I just go back into my mind. I do not look on a shelf for it. Take now the will. We have a will and we can choose. We can love. 
And we have the power, thanks to our will, of loving that which we think about. We can love the truth. Love the truth even that is in our own mind. We do not always need to love things that are outside of us. That's the amazing thing about our will. Is that our loves, just like our thoughts, can be imminent on the inside of us. We will not have time to touch how the angels think, but let us go to God. God is perfect life. Therefore, he will have perfect imminent activity. I say perfect imminent activity. Since he's a spirit, we will have to understand that perfect imminent activity after the analogy of our own, namely after the intellect and our will. So we look inside of ourselves to find some faint resemblance to this divine life. Now we said what we do in our mind is to think and also to love. Now God also thinks. And what does God think? He thinks a thought. Or a word. That thought of God or that word of God is distinct from him, but it is not separate from him as my thought is not separate from my mind, though distinct from my mind. I have many thoughts. So do you. But God has only one thought. And in that one thought or one word is contained all of the knowledge that is possible, all things that are known and can be known. God, therefore, does not need any word but that one word, which is the image and the splendor of his substance. Now, we call the words of the Gospel of John, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Who is the word that became flesh? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the thought of God. Well, you may ask, well, why do we call him the Son of God? Oh, that's not difficult to answer. Did we not say that you generate the thought in your mind or the word that is in your mind? Did we not say there's a higher generation than carnal generation? Well, God generates an eternal word. Now, applying it to the human order, what do we call the principle of generation? The Father. Do we not? And what is the term of generation in the earthly order? The Son. All right. Instead of calling God who thinks, the thinker, and instead of calling the thought or the word of God, just the thought, why not call God who thinks the Father. And why not call the God 
or the person who is the thought, the Son. That is why the Word that became flesh is called the Son. That is why the psalmist said, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And the Son of God became the Son of Man, and the Son of God who became the Son of Man is Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let us take another analogy. We have yet the third person of the Blessed Trinity. We said we not only think, but we also love. Now love is a relationship. It's a movement toward that which is love to unite it to oneself. I love you simply because I am communicating to you truth. Now, love is not something in me. Love is not something in you. Love is a mysterious bond uniting both of us. Love, therefore, is always to be understood as something that unites. And notice, too, that though love is, love is distinct from the thought, it proceeds from the thought and also from the thinker. God loves. God loves his perfection. Every being loves its perfection. The perfection of the eye is color. It loves color. The perfection of the ear is harmony. It loves harmony. The perfection of the stomach is food. It loves the food. The perfection of God, the Father, is God, the Son. The perfection of God, the thinker, is God. The Word is the Word of God. And the Father loves the Son. Love is not something in the Father alone. Love is not something in the Son alone. Love is a mysterious bond uniting the two. And because here we are dealing not with the personal and the biological, but with something infinite, that love cannot express itself by canticles, by words, by embraces. It cannot express itself like unto anything that we have on this earth. It can only express itself by that which signifies the very fullness and exhaustion of all giving, namely, a sigh. Something that lies too deep. All deep love is speechless. And that bond of love that unites father and son is called the Holy Breath, Holy Spirit, the Holy Love. And just as the color of the perfume and the beauty of the rose do not make three roses but one, as one times one times one do not make three but one, Just as I am, I think and I love, and yet I have only one nature. So in a far more mysterious way, there are three persons in God. And only one God. Thus there is in God a tremendous encircling love. God is 
Life, truth, and love. Now we know the life is the Father, the truth is the Son, and love is the Holy Spirit. And with John Donne we say, Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but not breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand Overthrowing me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another due, labor to admit you. But oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet, dearly, I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie me, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. God. Good Monday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this Monday evening to listen to The Wit and the Wisdom, which is Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We encourage you to tell a friend about Bishop Sheen on the radio here. And uh, always know that if you missed a portion of today's program, you can visit our website at www.bishopsheentoday.com to listen to one of our archives throughout this year. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. Our family has spanned the centuries and the globe. With God's grace, we started hospitals to care for the sick. We established orphanages and helped the poor. We are the largest charitable organization on the planet, bringing comfort to those in need. We educate more children than any other institution. We developed the scientific method and founded the college system. We defend the dignity of human life and uphold marriage. Guided by the Holy Spirit, we compiled the Bible. We are transformed by sacred scripture and sacred tradition, which have guided us for 2,000 years. We are the Catholic Church, with over one billion in our family, sharing in the sacraments and fullness of the Christian faith. Jesus started our church when he said to Peter, the first pope, You are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. So if you've been away from the Catholic Church, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. We are Catholic. Welcome home.